Toots. Hey everyone, and welcome to Brave New Church. As always, this is your host Brad, and I am very excited for this week's podcast. If you've tuned in before, you know that each week we've broken down a different element of the Christian church today, of how we do ministry and what that looks like in today's world. We've explored ways that our models are simply outdated and in many cases no longer connect with the world around us today. We've talked about how the language that we use in the church is even often out of sync with the language that people these days are using to discuss questions of meaning and purpose and spirituality in their everyday lives. But this week, we're going to turn from raising the question to exploring the answer. As we continue a multi-week series focused in on fixing our broken system. This week, we set the table for that conversation with Dr. David Lose, the current president of the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia, soon to be United Lutheran Seminary, former professor of preaching at Luther Seminary, and, of course, a parish pastor. David is one of the foremost voices in the Lutheran world today about preaching, engaging the culture around us, and wrestling with these new models of ministry for a changing world. It's clear when you hear David talk that he deeply cares for the future of the church, mostly because he cares, like all of us, for the future of his own children and grandchildren's spiritual lives. So today I invite you to listen in as we kick off our conversation of how to fix our broken system with Dr. David Lose. years ago, I was leading some grant work at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, and uh, we kind of took a detour from the uh, anticipated kind of research avenue we were heading down and delved into the culture for about a year, just trying to immerse ourselves and understand what's going on in the culture. And I always feel a little bit odd saying that because the culture we were studying, that was our culture. It's the culture we live in. It's the culture we get our news from, where we do uh, our online banking and stream entertainment and communicate with each other. Um, and so it's not like we were going to some foreign part of the world and trying to understand a different culture. We're really trying to understand our culture, and particularly the phenomena that, that I think I and a number of church leaders experience, that although we live our lives and make meaning and, and craft identity and do all these things out in the world, when we come to church, it's sort of like a lot of that experience gets left at the door. And so it was interesting for us to kind of immerse ourselves in the changes in our culture that we'd been a part of, like our whole growing up and into adulthood and our professional lives. Uh, and yet, even though we could track how much has changed over kind of one lifetime, at the same time, it was kind of remarkable how much of that hadn't filtered into our leadership in congregations, our preaching, our teaching, our teaching of congregational leaders. 
Um, and I know sometimes the pressure actually is on congregational leaders today not to change, right? It's not so much, let's keep up with the culture. It's pastor, everything is changing. I'm so glad church, at least, will never change. And it's this kind of peculiar pressure that we're living with. And the first thing I want to point out is recognizing that in a lot of ways over the last 30 years or so, 30 or 40 years, we, we have lost the support of the culture. That is, for 300 years or more, political leaders, civic leaders in this country had a vested interest in church participation and promoted that participation across the board. So persons from Benjamin Franklin to Dwight David Eisenhower actively encouraged congregational participation from the American public and citizenry. Eisenhower is the one who says quite famously at one point, I don't care what kind of church they go to as long as they go to church. Because there's this sense of a hand-in-glove relationship between being a citizen uh, and being a member of a congregation. And that has largely evaporated. There are still pockets of the country, the South or the upper Midwest, where some vestiges of that church culture remain. But by and large, it has evaporated. Now, I want to be really careful. Having said that, I don't want to give the impression that I think we are living in a culture hostile to our faith. That's simply not true. And there are Christians today who, in fact, are living in situations where there's great hostility to the faith, and you and I will likely never endure those kinds of challenges or trials at all. Our culture is increasingly indifferent to the faith, and that presents its own set of challenges. But above and beyond that indifference, I don't think we recognize the degree to which the culture supported us in teaching the Christian story. Uh, and I don't think we've adapted to the withdrawal of that support in any meaningful way. So, I, for instance, I remember uh, very clearly when I was in uh, sixth grade at James Buchanan Elementary School. That is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Anyway, in the sixth grade, uh, I was very excited when I was named one of the magi of our uh, public school Christmas pageant. Right? That's right. Every single year, one of the big events of the year was at this public elementary school, when we would put on a Christmas pageant, we all had uh, parts and, and did that. And when I searched, public, Googled public school Christmas pageant, the majority of pictures were black and white because we don't really do that anymore. And I want to be really clear, I don't think we should do that anymore. Um, I was surprised as my kids were growing up and learned early. I recognized fairly early. They probably knew and know more about the world's religions than I do because they have friends in all these different religions. And so my daughter Katie, for instance, I remember coming home one evening and having supper with us, she was in the fifth grade, uh, teaching us about Muslim customs of dress because one of her friends, teammates on the fifth grade basketball team was Muslim. And so she was talking about the accommodations the team had to make for her to be able to participate and wear a uniform. And it just realized they, they are in a very different, much more pluralistic cosmopolitan world than I grew up in, and, and I don't think the God that we know of vulnerability of the manger and the cross would want us to assume that the culture is there, our schools are there to push our story onto persons of different. So please hear me. I'm not pining for nostalgic past. I'm not trying to stir up culture wars. I'm just noticing that there's been a big shift in the kind of help we had from the culture, not just public schools, but also entertainment. Um, Andy Williams died about a half dozen years ago. Shortly after that, I saw a PBS special on the Christmas program that he and his brothers did for a quarter of a century. I had no idea of the cultural influence of this show. It launched acts like uh, the Osmond Family and the Jackson Five, and for 25 years with one of the highest rated programs on television where Andy Williams and his brothers helped teach 
the Christmas story through readings and songs and prayers to the American public in a way that simply doesn't happen in the same way anymore. Again, not so much grieving that change, but noticing it and asking how much have we done differently to accommodate that shift in the cultural support of the faith. Um, there's a way in which what I think the big challenge for us at this time is that the biblical story has shrunk in our cultural imagination and therefore largely in our congregational imagination. And there are so many other stories that have filled the gap. These are just kind of a smattering of magazine covers that I pulled off the internet one night. Some of them you'll recognize, they're rather iconic, some of them not. But each of them taps into a larger story about what the ancients would have called the good, the beautiful, and the true. Each one, that is, has a worldview behind it about what constitutes the good life. What's worth saving for, striving for, sacrificing for? And it's not just what we read, of course. It's what we watch on television. It's what we wear. It's what we drive. It's where we vacation. Think for a minute about the power of emblem or logo. We have kind of this whole alphabet that speaks to a very prevalent story, powerful story that has been happy to take the place that the Christian story has sur surrendered. And that is the consumer story. You are what you own. I was really struck by some research done by folks at Duke University who recognized that for those who are not deeply religious, increasingly the emblems on their shoes or shirt or laptop or car create as much of their identity as in a previous generation would have received that from religious identifications like a cross or a star of David. So again, just important to notice, we don't live in the same culture or have that same level of support. Second thing I want to point out, life in the last 30 years or so has just gotten so much busier. And one of the phenomena across groups, whether it's uh, gender or economic status or ethnicity, is this perception of a scarcity of time and a growing perception of the scarcity of time. Back in the 1970s, a Time magazine had a cover that was anticipating life in the 21st century. It seems funny now because we're here. <laughs> but you remember back when, you know, 30 years or so, this is before Y2K, 30 years or so, people started thinking about kind of this milestone and what would life be like? And the, the problem that Time Magazine anticipated dominating the lives of 21st century people was boredom. I kid you not. Now, think about where the time this is. This is the beginning of computing. So computers are being used to do more and more functions and it's the beginning of automation and factories. And so the thinking was, boy, it won't be long before machines do most of our work and computers do most of our tasks and our, our routine thinking. What are people in the future going to do? And I just don't see anyone right now who looks like you're on the verge of dying of boredom. <laughs> or more recently, um, think for a minute about uh, one that's easier for us to remember. Do you remember, how many of you remember when you first got an email account? and started using email. There are a few of you who just kind of grew up with that, but most of us kind of remember that. Do you remember that it was first pitched as a time saver? Right? It seems ridiculous now. But I remember people saying things like, we won't have to play phone tag anymore. I will just leave you an email. <gasps> Problem solved. <laughs> you know, and now most of us, just the other day I was saying to a colleague, you know, it's two in the afternoon, what have you done all day? Email. I thought I could almost fill 40 hours a week just responding to 
email. And what it creates, actually, in our lives is that increasingly these various ways of sort of speeding up our ability to communicate, making it easier to access each other and work, making it easier to pay attention with groups and what's going on in the world, has created this world in which there is no more Sabbath rest. And I don't even mean sort of Sabbath rest in the sense of setting time apart for hearing the word, uh, as Luther will talk about in his catechism. I mean no more time for rest that is valued as restorative. There just is no actual Sabbath rest for us. So again, back to email, the number of us who now when we, when we take vacation, and then think for a moment about the words we use to talk about vacation. We'll talk about unplugging, you know, or downtime. Right, they're images from the world of mechanization, like that's what our lives have become. So we have to unplug ourselves. Aha! You know, it's just something kind of perverse about that. Um, you go away on vacation, and most of us face kind of two unsavory choices. Let's say you're away for a full week. Your decision is, do you check in on email just a little bit every day so you don't get too far behind but are never really away? Or do you not check email at all, but by like the fourth day begin experiencing this dread of the very full email box you'll have when you get back? Um, increasingly, folks feel like so much of our time is filled by these different kind of possibilities, opportunities, that it's overwhelming. In this culture, we've operated by the assumption, from the assumption that more choice is always better. And what we've discovered is that some choice is almost always better than no choice. But it doesn't take long before the choices pile up and become overwhelming so as to make it difficult to navigate them. There's a new term, or relatively new term, you may have heard it, that psychologists are using to describe not kind of an acute condition, but more of a general and pervasive condition that's affecting our, our emerging generation. So kids, you know, high school age and younger, they call it FOMO. It stands for the fear of missing out. So they're recognizing that in this world of kind of, you know, 34,000 channels and websites and news outlets and places to get involved and causes to join and charities to support, that our, our emerging generation of youth are having a harder and harder time making commitments, making decisions about one option for fear it's not the best option. And when they do make a commitment, reporting that they enjoy that choice less because of the constant fear of missing out. Uh, so increasingly, folks have this sense of like so many choices, so limited time. And the two of those factors, uh, an absence of Sabbath rest, no particular encouragement from the culture, uh, are, are increasingly mean that this emerging generation uh, has moved out of what I would describe as the culture of duty into a culture of discretion. Let me unpack that a little bit. What I mean by culture of duty is that for a very long time in this country, uh, there were certain expectations of, of adulthood, certain norms to conform to, and most persons growing into adulthood did not need to be taught those explicitly. You learn them from watching the adults around you, your parents, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, people in your congregation, your school teachers, your coaches, most of the expectations for being an adult were communicated rather unconsciously by example. And that included things like um, being a part of the Lions Club or Kiwanis or the Junior League, uh, volunteering for the school PTA, uh, coaching Little League, subscribing to the local theater or orchestra, um, 
volunteering for military service, being a part of a church community, being a part of a bowling league. There were all kinds of sort of a, a group social uh, expectations or possibilities, and you learned those simply by watching, which meant that a lot of what you did, you did out of an unconscious sense of duty. You knew you were supposed to, and that was enough. And that largely has shifted into a culture of discretion. Now discretion, think about that in terms of discretionary time or discretionary income. It's that sense of needing to make a decision, to make a choice. You have to exercise your discretion. You can't do everything. And that's the world that our kids have grown up in, where they're constantly being forced to make decisions and have some pressure on them, but also some real self-interest in those being good choices, having some return on their investment. And the minute we talk that way, we start, I think, feeding into this kind of cultural censuring of our youth. Uh, the, the amount of ink spilled by cultural commentators describing this emerging generation as egocentric or narcissistic, or it's all about me, or the me generation. And I want to kind of suspend the value judgments and just recognize they're growing up in a world where they have in front of them hundreds of choices about almost everything, from the careers they can do, to the lives they can lead, to the way they navigate their relationships, to the way they exercise their spirituality. And in that kind of environment, they have to exercise their discretion. And that's a, the, the idea of wanting to get something out of your time is really not a bad criteria to use. So we will say people shouldn't come to church because it meets their needs. They should just come to church. Because we grew up in a, a, a culture of duty that didn't expect a lot from any of our associations, or that the primary motivator was we knew we were supposed to be there. And the emerging generation just isn't at that place and hasn't been able to, which means that they will not simply go to church just because their parents did. All right, with that kind of brief overview of where we are culturally, what I want to do is think about what we can do about it. And the first thing I want to do is reframe, um, look at it a little bit differently. When I think of reframing, one of the, the uh, images that comes to mind for me to get at that is to look at the, you know, think about the gestalt pictures almost all of us have seen at one time or another. You can always see two things, but not at once. And you have to make a decision then. What will be foreground, what will be background? You can see two faces looking at each other or a chalice in between, but not both at the same time. You can see the older woman from the side or the young woman from behind, but you need to make a decision. Or, I love this poem by a 17th century Japanese poet, Barnes Burned Down. <gasps> now I can see the moon. Both are true. What will we focus on? There has been a lot of expressions of lament in the church, that we have fewer and fewer people who are willing to come and give and teach and volunteer simply because they know they're supposed to. And I understand that. We have uh, owe so much to the generations before us who have given of themselves that way. But if we have a generation of Christians who perhaps are smaller than their uh, ancestors and yet are there because it meets their needs, and helps them make sense of their lives, and they know why they're there and it matters to them, and they've made a choice, not just been swept along by the culture, but have made a decision to be there over and against other things. I don't know, I think there's opportunity there. That thought somehow strangely warms my heart. And I'd like us to step back from lamenting all of the challenges, which are real, 
and instead begin to think about some of the possibilities or opportunities. Once we reframe and think about this not simply as challenge but also opportunity, then I think we can also reconsider. We can think a little bit differently about some of the ways we do things. Probably the longest running uh, poll or survey on religious life in the last generation uh, is, a, is a one question survey that has four possible responses. And it's the survey that then gave birth to the phrase we're all used to now, spiritual but not religious. So the question was, which of the following statements best describes you and your relationship to religion? Uh, and the four possibilities were, I am religious but not spiritual. I am spiritual but not religious. I am both. I am neither. And the big flip over the last 30 years has been a shift from the majority of people in our congregations, the majority of, of people taking that survey rather, I am religious but not spiritual, to the emerging generation saying we are spiritual but not religious. Now when you think about where that poll started, middle 70s, and that it probably accurately describes the couple of decades at least before it, uh, then you recognize that almost all of our congregational practices and even the way we think about how to be church in the world were shaped for a generation that was very clear in saying, we like our religion. We're not that interested in a spiritual life. Like, that's not what we're coming for. And then their grandchildren are saying, we are all about the spiritual life and coming to congregations completely set up for the opposite. So the invitation is, is not to say we got to change for change's sake or throw it out or invent it new, but to reconsider. That is, can we look at elements of our congregational life, our piety, our, our religious imagination, and simply put them on the table to think about them again? Some of them may stay just the way they are. Some may be adapted in small or large ways. Others, we may say, you know, they have served us so well, but it's time to do something new. I don't know yet, you don't know yet, but can we imagine that space or create that space to think differently about it? Now, one quick word about change leadership, because inevitably, even creating that kind of space to reconsider will make some people very anxious. And it's really, really been helpful for me to remember when I encounter people who are resisting what I'm trying or even what I'm thinking or what I'm thinking about trying. <laughs> it's been helpful for me to remember uh, a line from teacher-scholar Ron Heifetz, who is one of the adaptive leadership gurus at Harvard. Heifetz says that in one of his books, people don't fear change, they fear loss. And I find that immensely helpful to my own reframing of what's going on in an encounter with someone. When someone's resisting something or anxious about something, it's not that there's sticks in the mud, it's that there is something at stake for them that has meant something to them and they're worried about losing that, which allows you then to relate to them in a very different way. And at the very least, acknowledge that potential grief and to honor them by hearing it. The ability to say to someone, what I hear you saying is, because although it might feel a little manufactured for you, for another person who regularly has met people that don't seem that interested in their views, it's incredibly a, a gift to have someone say, I'm listening carefully enough to you because I value you and what you say. So there's a way in which when we listen to people who bring their resistance or concerns and listen for the grief, not simply the, the what, but the what's beneath that, 
we are honoring them, and we can further honor them by often agreeing with them. Let's, you know, it's a hymn or a kind of worship or something in their piety, and most of us can genuinely say, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and that I can see that it has meant a lot to you. It's meant a lot to me, too. Don't say it if it's not true, <laughs> but often much of these pieces were formative in our own faith, and to honor that. And once you've kind of listened and honored someone, then I think that then you are able then to ask what I often call the question, which is simply to be able to say, it's clear that this has been very important to you and has helped you in your faith. Do you think it's helping your children and grandchildren in their faith? And by asking that pivotal question, you're moving from the what, different kind of hymnody or way of organizing ourselves or outreach or worship style to the why. And the why is very simple. There are people we love who are not here. And we so much want to share the treasure that our faith has been for us, for them. Because as much as we love the way we've always done it, typically we love our kids and grandkids more. It's not always actual kids and grandkids. It can be friends, neighbors, nieces, nephews, people in the community. But to orient the community around the why we are reconsidering can be immensely helpful. Wow, David certainly gives us plenty to think about as we move into the future and begin to turn our questions about why the church of today is not connecting with people into answers. Even in the way that David asks the questions, I can begin to hear echoes of possible solutions as we move forward in exploring this question in the coming weeks. And so I hope that you'll continue to join us in the next several episodes as we move forward, asking the question of how we can fix this broken system. Well, that's all we have for today. I'd really love to hear from you and those that you share this podcast with, what your thoughts are, what you'd like to hear more of as we move forward. And I hope that you'll join us at our online home, bravenewchurch.org. At Brave New Church, you will find all episodes of the podcast, weekly blog posts that you can subscribe to, as well as a library of resources to help you and your congregation move forward in reimagining ministry for this brave new world we find ourselves living in. Well, that's all I have for you this week, friends. So until we talk again next time, may you discover what God is already up to in your neighborhood.